0: Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove.
1: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we are going to explore altered states of consciousness in a medical setting. With me is Dr. Lauren Belge, who is chair of the Department of Medicine for Theta Care in Appleton, Wisconsin and director of two intensive care units there. She is also author of Near Death in the ICU. Welcome, Lauren. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for coming.
0: Happy to be here. Thank you.
1: You have written extensively about a wide variety of unusual states. I Mm -hmm. would even go so far as to call them paranormal states that occur routinely, uh, or maybe routinely is is too strong a word, but uh, occur more than most people would suspect in uh, the intensive care unit. Mm
0: Certainly more than we are perhaps aware of in mm-hmm. our day-to-day activities., uh, but yes, I have uh, for many years uh, been aware that patients experience things that fall outside of what we would consider the normal medical experience and may actually be um, particularly in moments of crisis, be actually part of a normal patient experience and mm-hmm. how they react to to trauma, to illness, to uh, being in a, a state where they are hovering near death, perhaps. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, I think one can just look at Uh, centuries of literature that suggests that uh, illness can uh, provoke uh, visionary experiences Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for example. Many we call it delirium sometimes.
0: Delirium, hallucinations and I think that we can actually include those in the spectrum of of Mm -hmm. consciousness experiences Mm -hmm. but I think that there's something more. I think that there's something that um, we perhaps fully don't understand about how patients interact in crisis. and how they react to their environment mm-hmm. that we would consider, uh, for lack of a better word, paranormal. But mm-hmm. I actually think I would like to take it a step further and say, I'm, I'm not sure it's paranormal, but it may be something um, that is part of the normal human experience mm-hmm. uh, within the realm of consciousness that we just don't have the knowledge of or vocabulary to understand or even describe at mm-hmm. this point in our development.
1: Sure, I tend to think of paranormal as something not readily explained by Newtonian physics. Mm-hmm. But, but, it, but it is a tricky word. Many people feel these are normal Phenomenon; they ought not to be called paranormal. Mm-hmm. But now, most medical doctors, I gather, are uh, certainly not trained in mm-hmm. in this area, and uh, maybe not even appreciative or or too busy to mm-hmm. to pay attention. But in your case, you're I think you were probably sensitized to these experiences because you had one of your own.
0: Well, certainly, and I think that, um, I, I like when you said that we're too busy because mm-hmm. I don't think it's necessarily an intention of people who are caring for patients to dismiss these experiences. Mm-hmm. I think that we are so busy, we're so focused on, um, those things that we do understand, that we have been taught, and that we know how to treat, and that we know how to have relationship with, that perhaps we aren't as aware or attuned that there are experiences mm-hmm. that other, that patients may have that they don't understand, that we don't understand, and so we don't have a good vocabulary right. to talk about them.
1: And I suppose also doctors are often unwilling to acknowledge that, that this they're maybe not in their own league mm-hmm. dealing with mm-hmm. these kinds of mm-hmm. phenomena.
0: I've encountered that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've encountered even my own discomfort with trying to understand what's going Mm -hmm. on. Uh, My first experience with this around patient care was Mm -hmm. when I was actually a resident, Mm -hmm. and I was taking care of a a lovely man named Samuel, or that's what I call him to preserve his anonymity. Mm -hmm. Um, but, But Samuel was, under my care, had been, or the care of the medical team that I was a part of, had been admitted to the Veterans Administration Hospital that was associated with the program where I was, the university program where I was training, Mm -hmm. and he was admitted with abdominal pain. And we assumed that this abdominal pain was related to um, his known pancreatitis. Mm. And when his um, illness progressed and he became more ill, uh, he became sicker, and we began to suspect that perhaps it wasn't just his typical pancreatitis. We began the workup discovered that he had actually ischemic bowel or uh, dead bowel that was developing mm-hmm. as a result of having oxygen or blood supply cut off. A life-threatening condition. A life-threatening condition, a gut attack, so to speak, yep. where the blood is cut off. And he became uh, I- increasingly ill, mm-hmm. and it became apparent that he would need to have surgery. Mm-hmm. And so I broached the topic to him that this was not the pancreatitis we thought it was, And to save his life, he was going to have surgery. He said no. Mm -hmm. He refused the surgery. And in trying to understand why he was declining surgery, he said, because I had surgery before. And when they cut me open, I saw the whole thing. And I didn't know what to say. I yeah. didn't know how to respond to that. And in a um, being well-versed in medical vocabulary and nothing outside of that vocabulary mm-hmm. and trying to fit what he was telling me into the scaffolding of what I had learned, mm-hmm. it didn't fit. It yeah. just didn't make sense. And so the more he described to me what he had experienced, mm-hmm. um, it became clear that he would not have been able to see physically what he described. He described seeing his abdomen cut open. He described seeing, in his words, his guts Mm -hmm. laid out.
1: As if he were hovering above the operating table.
0: And those who know how an operating room is set up, there is Mm -hmm. a sterile drape that extends up from the surgical site, from where the the abdomen has been sterilized, and mm-hmm. th- there is a surgical drape that has been placed over, it, and then it extends up to separate the the visual field mm-hmm. from the the abdomen. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I also knew is on the side of the drape where Samuel was was the anesthesiologist who is responsible for uh, making sure that he maintains a level of deep sedation, make sure that he doesn't feel any pain, make sure that he makes sure that he's unconscious. Mm-hmm. So, my thought was, not really understanding what he was experiencing, I asked him, well, did you feel pain? And he said, no, I didn't feel any pain, but I saw everything and it freaked me out. So, mm-hmm. I will never have surgery again.
1: Yeah. Which he, he couldn't have seen from his, through his eyes. Physically,
0: it would have been impossible for yeah. him to have seen uh, the surgical field. This,
1: this sounds like what a parapsychologist, such as myself, mm-hmm. would call a classical out-of-body experience.
0: Right. It mm-hmm. certainly sounds like that, but I didn't yeah, know that at sure. the time. I didn't have that vocabulary.
1: It's not in medical textbooks, typically. No. Mm-hmm. No,
0: it is not in medical textbooks. Except maybe
1: as a psychiatric sim- symptom. Well,
0: they, they may be. And unfortunately, yeah. we tend to interact with those experiences through that lens, that mm-hmm. maybe this is a delusion, a psychosis. Mm-hmm. Um I felt like with that particular experience though, still being firmly rooted in physical matter reality and yeah. trying to understand what he was telling me, that perhaps I could find some answers in the anesthesiologist's record. Sure. So, uh, that was back in the day before electronic medical records. So, mm-hmm. we had to go into the bowels of the hospital mm-hmm. and pull out paper charts. Yes. And, you know, typically, uh, you know, patients can have charts that, that high, a stack you wanted of to make
1: sure that he was properly anesthetized.
0: Well, exactly. I uh-huh. mean, I wanted to understand, you know, was he awake during the surgery? Why was he um, able to yeah. describe this surgery? And again, still very confined to a literal interpretation. So, so
1: he was basically, even though he felt no pain, he was horrified. By what he saw,
0: right, and he was still interpreting it mm-hmm. in a very literal way. Yes. Well, I did find the anesthesiologist record, mm-hmm. and um, the the record was the the account was very bland, as it should be. Yes. I mean, his blood pressure was normal when someone feels pain. Typically, the blood pressure is yeah. elevated. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, there there was no indication by the anesthesiologist that anything was out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. It was a route, according to the surgeon's records, according to the Mm -hmm. anesthesiologist's records, it was a very uh, smooth procedure, Mm -hmm. and nothing untoward had occurred.
1: Mm -hmm. So, So it would appear from all of this that he could go through surgery again to save his life, and uh, it, it could happen safely.
0: Right. and and we in, in trying to find a, a convincing platform to convince Samuel to have surgery, that was what we talked about. And I, I still didn't think of it in terms as anything outside of a normal experience, but mm-hmm. something wasn't quite yeah. um, adding up. But he refused the surgery mm-hmm. fundamentally because of what he had experienced that neither one of us understood and passed away.
1: And you were, you were a resident at the time. You had a supervisor who was overseeing your right. work with this patient who, as I recall from your book, didn't want you to talk about his experience. There
0: is a very, uh, there, there was a culture of dis-ease around things that we don't understand. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I thought perhaps this was a fugue state or something that I had not yet encountered. I yeah. was, I was, mm-hmm. I had just finished medical school. I had just started sure. my residency. So I was thinking, you know, this is probably something that occurs mm-hmm. in surgical patients that I just have not come across. Yeah. So I talked to uh, my supervising resident, my senior resident, and I explained to him what Samuel had experienced. I explained his refusal of surgery. And I remember him saying, Whatever you say to the attending physician tomorrow in rounds, I wouldn't say that. Mm-hmm. And uh, even now, so many years later, his words are a, a brand brand. Yeah. Um, to how we should interact with patients and each other around these experiences that patients have that we don't understand.
1: And in this case it was a matter of life and death. Had there been some way for you to communicate to him about this experience, he might have decided to go ahead with the life-saving surgery.
0: I still think about that. Yeah. I still think about that to this day. In fact, um, I talk about uh, in my book the fatality of fear mm-hmm. and and um, use that as a an invitation to consider these anomalous experiences that patients say. Don't judge them. Just consider them. Mm-hmm. And. Um, focus on trying to have a conversation with the patient around uh, the idea of honoring their experience mm-hmm. and trying to understand that experience with them so that fear doesn't inform our choices the way that it did for Samuel.
1: And and also, I think it's useful for people in the medical community to know that should they choose to look at the literature and parapsychology and related disciplines, mm-hmm. altered states of consciousness. There's there's a growing body of uh, very credible literature, in my opinion, very credible. Well, I know it's controversial uh, with some people.
0: Certainly, it's controversial with some people, but credible is, I, I think, accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just in parapsychology literature. If you dig deeply enough, mm-hmm. you will find references within mainstream medical literature to Alternate states of consciousness yes. um, and uh, reports of patients mm-hmm. uh, describing things that they ought not to be able to describe with their five earthbound physical mm-hmm.
1: senses. One of the uh, kinds of experiences that you write about, which I think really gets to the heart of the mystery, is when uh, patients who are near death seem to experience the presence of other people, relatives of theirs, for example, who who may have uh, predeceased them and uh, uh, and they didn't even know that
0: now that's an interesting one because that is an area where you will find health care providers of uh, with a, with a little bit more ease mm-hmm. around that experience. Because I, it's
1: so common? I think
0: it's more common. Mm-hmm. I think it's more common. And uh, things that are more common that we see with mm-hmm. more regularity, we yeah. can find a space for it within our uh, understanding of the world. And um, especially nurses who work with patients who are... Um, close to death. Mm -hmm. Hospice nurses and hospice physicians in particular will talk about bedside visitations Mm -hmm. and their ability to, um, their apparent ability to have conversations with people they know who have crossed over. And Mm -hmm. I've certainly had patients share those Mm experiences with me.
1: You wrote in one instance about a nurse who was very disturbed uh, when she saw a patient engaging in conversation with someone she couldn't see, the nurse couldn't see.
0: Right. And And I understand her concern. I do. I, I had a nurse call me not long before uh, the uh, my, I was tying up the book, and she was very concerned mm-hmm. about a patient under her care who was close to death. And she said that she's talking to people. I think she is um, maybe hallucinating. Mm-hmm. And she actually called me. I was on call. She right. called me to see if I might consider prescribing a medication that would address these hallucinations. An
1: anti-psychotic.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so I said to her, Does she, is she in distress? Well, no, she doesn't seem to be in distress. Um, so then I... Was able to have a conversation ar- ar- with her around this to mm-hmm. suggest that well, if she's not in distress, this might be one of the, a situation that we see in patients who are close to death, who are having bedside conversations, um, and that's uncomfortable for mm-hmm. some people to consider. Uh, one of the things that I, I thought was so important to me to convey in this book is that we're talking about phenomenon that we can't prove happen or didn't happen, and the patient can't prove to us that they did happen or right. are happening, is yeah. there some way that we can find a middle ground mm-hmm. to respect the patient's experience mm-hmm. and to not judge it?
1: Right. I mean, certainly a patient would be very sensitive if they thought their doctor was uh, denying something mm-hmm. that seemed so very real to them. hmm
0: well, and I think that's an important point too, is that we often, and I wish I could say it, I'm exaggerating, but I have seen my colleagues deny a patient's experience. Mm-hmm. And that is a very important part of this dialogue.
1: Mm-hmm. Because that can really be harmful Um, to a patient.
0: It can be harmful. And currently in in the ICU world, Mm -hmm. there is significant emphasis on post-traumatic stress disorder in the intensive care unit. Mm -hmm. It's a hot topic worldwide, and rightly so. I mean, to be uh, in a bed hooked up to all manner of machines, having no control over uh, movement, function, breathing, uh, to become aware of that, it's very stressful for the patient. And Mm -hmm. sometimes they can misinterpret those um, occurrences or those invasions uh, of tubes in their mouth, tubes mm-hmm. in their bladder, is sure. something else, um, and that's where it becomes a little bit um, muddy. You know, the these uh, experiences that patients are having mm-hmm. that they were misinterpreting. I've in
1: other words, a patient might be hallucinating, right? And, and they feel as if it's a real experience. You know that it's a hallucination mm-hmm. because the patient mm-hmm. is so tied up, they can't, for example, be moving around the ward mm-hmm. in their physical body as they imagine that they have done. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're so wedded to having experienced that in their own mind that to try and deny it would would be disrespectful.
0: Exactly. And I, I maintain that I think that there's a place that certainly patients hallucinate, mm-hmm. certainly patients interpret physical stimuli in a non-physical way, Mm -hmm. but I think there's a growing body of evidence that there along this spectrum of anomalous experiences of consciousness, there are other things for which we do not have A tidy explanation Mm. that seemed to transcend our physical world. And do we need to really have it proven to honor somebody's Mm -hmm. experience? No. Do we really need to understand how it happens to convince ourselves that it's real? No. It's not our experience, and it's not our place to judge it.
1: And furthermore, there is a background literature that suggests people actually do have out-of-body experiences, and sometimes they come back from those experiences and, and report Things that are later determined to be veridical or verifiable.
0: Exactly. I mean, especially people who, um, professionals who have made it their life's work to study Mm -hmm. these anomalous states of consciousness. Um, as any researcher would be, they are very interested in, um, cases where, uh, the patient was seemingly unconscious Mm -hmm. or was experiencing cardiac death and those patients who were caring for them or those providers who Mm -hmm. are caring for them can corroborate their story and also verify that while they were under their care they were unconscious and not able to describe Mm -hmm. some of the things that They were able to come back and tell us. You
1: report one case, as I recall, of a patient who witnessed their own surgery and realized that the uh, main doctor wasn't the one who performed the surgery. There was someone else in the room. Right. And
0: this is, this is a great, um, account to illustrate Mm -hmm. how we, without intention, um, can dismiss someone's experience. Um, I have an account in the book of a patient who had simple knee surgery and it was in an academic center. Mm -hmm. So he presented to, um, the office visit where there was an attending physician and there were several residents and they were all looking at his, uh, MRI, Mm -hmm. the MRI of the knee and discussing how they would proceed with surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, this, uh, patient assumed that the attending physician was going to be doing the surgery he was never told otherwise mm-hmm. and at the time of surgery he became aware of the anesthesiologist telling him to inhale anesthesia gases and count backwards from a hundred but at some point he was aware of a shift in his position and he was able to see above the surgical field, not only his body, but he was able to see the surgery surgery team of Mm -hmm. residents and attendings working on his knee. Mm -hmm. He was actually able to see his knee poking up through uh, this sterile field, which he remarked he thought it looked like an island in the midst of an ocean. Mm -hmm. Um, But one important thing that helped verify that something anomalous had happened is he pointed out that it wasn't the attending who had actually performed the surgery, but a resident, mm-hmm. and he was able to describe this resident and describe how he had done it. But one, one thing was interesting about this, this case, and I think it represents how we interact with things we don't understand, is that the physician basically told him, there's no way you could have known that. You were out. Yeah. And um, the patient said, no, I saw my surgery. Mm-hmm. And the surgeon maintained, that's impossible. You didn't see your surgery. We were all there. We confirmed that you were unconscious throughout the whole thing. So here was an opportunity to honor someone's experience. Mm-hmm. And it was sidesteps. And
1: in truth, even though you've got many physiological measures mm-hmm. that normally correlate with consciousness, mm-hmm. we can't observe consciousness directly.
0: We can't. We can't observe love directly. We can't observe a dream directly. I mean, there are all kinds of emotions and experiences within the human spectrum of experience that mm-hmm. we can't confirm. But we have a strong body of experience collectively to agree that they exist, mm-hmm. and to to some extent we've all experienced them. But things that lie out of that body of experience, that mm-hmm. collective body of experience, we have a harder time uh, accepting them if it falls out of our belief system, And there's a professional belief system. Or so, there's otherwise.
1: the issue of anomalous experiences. There's the issue of potential, I would call them paranormal experiences, mm-hmm. but there are many other words that might work. But as a medical doctor dealing with life and death circumstances, I would think you're really approaching what people sometimes call the sacred, spiritual experiences. Um.
0: They... Well, they certainly seem to have that it, that sort of impact mm-hmm. on the experiencer. Yes. Which I think is one reason why it's so important to honor the patient's experience, mm-hmm. even if we don't understand it, because yeah. frequently these out-of-body experiences, these near-death experiences are so outside of their own experience of being physical Mm -hmm. that they're often transformative. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a very real experience that patients will say is more vivid than a dream, Mm -hmm. more real than imagination Mm -hmm. and they are able to, especially when they're able to come back and describe things in their environment that they couldn't possibly see or describe circumstances they couldn't possibly Mm -hmm. know because they were unconscious, it has a pivotal transformative experience Event, uh, impact on them.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Some would call that spiritual.
1: Yeah. They, I, I, I think so. A deep transformative mm-hmm. experience touching the, the core of one's essence. I mean, I mean, for example, you write about people who have experienced what was, in, in effect, clinical death, mm-hmm. but were told by guides or, or loved ones who had passed over earlier, they have to return. And they do.
0: They do, and they don't always take kindly to that. Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, the, the body of literature around near-death experiences, uh, describes by and large that people have a very positive experience. It's a very weightless space of love and mm-hmm. peace. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to come back to the dense, tangled, uh, nature of physical, physical matter, matter reality, mm-hmm. yeah. particularly if there's pain involved in and and suffering. Emotional it's entanglements
1: of sure. your family and so sure. on. After you've been, had a taste of heaven.
0: However, mm-hmm. I mean, those patients, you you alluded to the fact that these occurrences are transformational. They're mm-hmm. often pivotal. Yes. But those patients who describe near-death experiences often come back And do have a transformational moment Mm -hmm. in their lives where everything after that has changed. Mm -hmm. They frequently describe that their relationships are changed, and how they see the world, and Mm -hmm. how they they live this life. Mm -hmm. Uh, That transformative experience has had an impact on them. So how can we not honor that?
1: Right. Well, I know it's not always easy for people who have had that experience, because Mm -hmm. there is a strong tendency amongst people who hold a materialistic viewpoint to discount it, or Mm -hmm uh some people for r- religious reasons will say you know this you might have had a, a diabolical experience mm-hmm. or or something f- you know forbidden it's it's a taboo subject one way or the other
0: Well, it's an experience that because we don't have Mm -hmm. enough experience collectively as a human species, it's still something that's uncomfortable for us to talk about. We don't have a language. Mm -hmm. We don't have the understanding of it. Do we even have the capacity to understand it? Are these brains capable of understanding this conscious Mm -hmm. phenomena? I don't know. But understanding that it has a transformative experience for Mm -hmm. someone, do we necessarily need to be able to explain it in order to Honor the transformative mm-hmm. place it has in someone's life, we wouldn't question someone for having a a, a moment of insight or for reaching out to um, a, a deity in prayer. we don't question that yeah. we accept that as a part of the integrated mm-hmm. um, a, as an integrated part of the human experience. Mm-hmm. so can we stretch that a little bit farther and say these anomalous experiences of consciousness that patients share with us? Do we need to, and do we even have a right to deny them that Mm -hmm. experience? It's not helpful for us to say, I can't prove it, therefore it doesn't exist, and therefore you didn't experience it.
1: Yeah. Well, there seems to be a strong need for some people to deny it. It's almost a psychological compulsion. The mm-hmm. debunkers and the skeptics feel uh, that, you know, if they don't deny it, they're opening the door to the rising tide of superstition mm-hmm. or, or or something worse, you know, the demons of hell. Sure. I,
0: mean, mm-hmm. I think that there is discomfort with things we don't understand. Yeah. There is extreme discomfort, mm-hmm. not just with medical providers, but often family members. Mm-hmm. I've had um, one patient that I, I took care of um, in one of our trauma intensive care units had an experience where she was near death, mm-hmm. floating in that thin yeah. space between life and death at the scene of the accident, and saw her mother. Mm-hmm. and had a very real experience a very tactile experience of of physical touch from her mother a hug hearing her voice mm-hmm. so an audible experience mm-hmm. she was also aware of her of the accident scene she didn't totally lose consciousness and when she was um telling us about this experience after we had were able to uh, remove her from life support so mm-hmm. that she could succeed on her own. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was. That was the first thing she wanted to talk about. Mm-hmm. I saw my mom. She was tearful. She was yeah. joyous, uh-huh. and her family was very uncomfortable with that. In mm-hmm. fact, I remember uh, one of her children saying. Cut it out, Mom, that didn't happen. Oh. And uh, so we we all have the potential mm-hmm. to 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 squ- want to squash and the instinct to want to suppress someone's experience that doesn't fit neatly into our understanding mm-hmm. of reality. Uh, we don't have to understand it. To- well, that's
1: your message that people could just be a little more tolerant of these things
0: right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about something that someone experienced that they can't prove to us did happen. Mm-hmm. We can't prove to them did not happen. So can we agree upon a middle space that is respectful to what someone believe, strongly believe happened? And I also take it a step farther and say it's not only respectful, but it's useful to help their healing process, mm-hmm. particularly with this this focus on post-traumatic stress symptoms and syndromes that are born out of these prolonged and often critical um, intensive care experiences. Mm -hmm. Is it possible, and I think it is, that how we interact with someone's anomalous experience has an impact on how they heal? Mm -hmm. I think it does.
1: Dr. Lauren Belch, thank you so Mm -hmm. much for sharing this half hour with me.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: It's been a great pleasure. For me as well and thank you for being with us.